I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 29th, 2013. Coming up, what happens when scientists become acrobats in a circus? And of the 17 billion Earth-sized planets in the Milky Way, which ones have the best chance for life? And what kind of life? Perhaps good nightlife. Yeah, we're actually... Uh Keying in on these, we're very interested in these planets that are in the Goldilocks zone that might have uh, life out there somewhere else. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A team of scientists has just published new results that link Greenland's melting ice sheets to sea level changes in the distant past. It's the North Greenland Emian Ice Drilling Project. For the first time, an ice core that reaches all the way back to the last interglacial has been retrieved from the Greenland ice sheet. That, con- that core contains samples of atmosphere in bubbles and chemical markers that allow climate from over 100,000 years ago to be determined on very fine timescales. The Emian is a sort of analog to our current global warming, beginning about 130,000 years ago and lasting for 15,000 years. Average global temperatures rose over 8 degrees Celsius from the previous millennium's average. Sea levels rose about 5 meters. The team was able to determine that the Greenland ice sheet lost about 100 meters. But that's not enough, according to Jim White, head of the U.S. team. We now know that that, uh, Greenland was not the sole contributor to that sea level rise. Uh, and that points the finger to the south. That points the finger particularly to West Antarctica, which is, um, which is a very interesting finding because West Antarctica is a very dynamic ice sheet. Its, its base is well below sea level, and it can raise sea level much faster than Greenland can. White is the director of CU Boulder's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. He further explains the significance of the findings. You know, our responsibility is to uncover what nature has to tell us. You know, what, what is a planet telling us? And that's what we're doing. And the planet in this case is telling us that um, this whole issue of sea level rise in the future um, has got some, some uh, potential twists in the story. And some of those twists might be plot changes that we're not going to be very happy with particularly if sea level begins to rise a lot faster than it is today. The team published their findings in the January 24th issue of Nature. If you've had aches and pains and sniffles lately, you're not alone. Every year, millions of people are bedridden with the flu, and in the U.S., it kills roughly 36,000. All this comes from a tiny virus made up of only eight parts and ten proteins. Yet inside a healthy cell, that simple flu virus is a mastermind at multiplying fast and then quickly leaving the cell before the immune system can catch it. This quick escape allows the many copies of the virus to attack other cells and continue to multiply. Researchers have long wondered how the flu manages to multiply and then leave a cell so fast. Now scientists at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York have identified a key player in that great escape. It's the nuclear export protein, or NEP for short. NEP helps viruses leave an infected cell. The research team discovered that without NEP, viral replication slows dramatically. Fortunately for most people, the body's immune system eventually catches up with the flu and sends it on its way. 
General flu prevention depends on avoiding infected individuals, routine hand washing, and disinfecting easily contaminated items. The seasonal flu vaccine offers some protection as well. And someday, these researchers suggest, a drug may be able to block NEP, slowing the virus so that the immune system can catch it faster. This study was published earlier this month in Cell Reports. For How on Earth, this is Rabba Kamal. And for those who enjoy live discussions of science, check out the new mini-STEM lectures at the Tivoli Center on the CU Denver Aurora campus. STEM stands for Presentations About Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. The professors who give the mini-STEM lectures promise to make them understandable to every interested regular person. The next mini-STEM lecture is tomorrow, January 30th, and it goes from 7 to 9 p.m. It features Diana Tomback from the Department of Integrative Biology. Her topic will be Evolution and the Origin of Life. Seating is limited and registration is required. For more information, go to howonearthradio.org. We'll link to the lectures from there. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Poland. This Friday and Saturday, acrobats, educators are raising money for a Westminster public school with a debut performance by the brand-new troupe called the Vicindi Circus. Vicindi is the Icelandic word for science. Its exotic sound hints at just how magical science might be as part of a circus. For more about what happens when science joins the circus, here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlinder. At Westminster's Sunset Ridge Elementary School, if you ask a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? You might hear answers like these. I want to be in a circus. When I grow up, I want to be a football player and a circus performer. I want to be a veterinarian, but I also want to help out with the circus. How long is it going to be the circus? It's like an hour and a half. It's like watching a movie. By day, Cassie Drew is their teacher. By night, Drew runs a circus. Until her early 20s, Drew was a competitive gymnast. She can still leap and spin and somersault, and she's been teaching her all-volunteer performing troupe how to do this for the weekend show. You know, and all these people are doing this work for free. You know, this is volunteer. They're doing it not only because it's something they believe in, but they're supporting me, and they're supporting this community and this idea, and wow. I love the circus arts, I love education, I love science. I'm like, yeah, I'm in, of course, 100%. At the age of 15, Ian Caldwell was traveling the world as a circus performer. He tumbles, he juggles, and he trains everyone how to take a bow. But while Caldwell says working for a circus is a dream come true, for him, something was missing. I missed all the mental activity and mental gymnastics, if you will. Caldwell came to Boulder and helped a friend start a circus school. Then he headed to CU for a physics degree. Physics was fascinating. And now he's doing a master's in education. He won a prestigious scholarship that pays him for five years to fine-tune his teaching skills. And as part of that, he's decided to develop a curriculum of circus skills to help students have more fun learning. For the Vicindi Circus, Caldwell says there's plenty of ways to teach science. 
So circus is gorgeous. Circus is beautiful in its own right. But then to look at it through the eyes of a scientist, it adds more depth uh, to, to understand some of the physics that's going on, how the body is moving and why. just adds another dimension. The science lessons grew even richer when some real scientists volunteered for the Vicindi Troupe. I am Joe Ramos. I do acro in Vicindi Circus, and what acro is is that I hold people on top of me, either in a handstand or sometimes they stand on my shoulders, sometimes there's multiple people standing on me, um, sometimes I, I partner up with someone else, we hold a whole tower of people on top of us. So you're very strong. Uh, it's more about technique, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm strong enough. <laughs> I'm also an engineer at the Laboratory of Atmospheric and Space Physics, where I do mostly magnetic design and integration and test characterization of satellites. Ramos says his favorite science trick in the circus involves rotating a bicycle wheel and explaining how it spins. We spin it very quickly. And we hang it on a big metal circle ring called a lira, which is a circus apparatus. And the way in which it hangs is pretty magical because it doesn't swing or move the way anyone would expect. And it ends up imparting some angular momentum into the lira, making it spin kind of magically on its own. The way in which the lights are and the fact there's so much spinning metal, it just looks magical, as well as I find it very engaging because I don't understand what's going on. Wait a second, you're a physicist, and you work with space satellites and space science. Space science is about things that orbit and circle, and when you're spinning a bicycle wheel, you're not quite sure what's going on? Oh, well, I mean, I designed the experiment, so um, I know it's difficult to... To visualize. Well, it's kind of like it becomes the planet Earth that's decided your hand is the sun. It is, it is like that. I and mean, there's a lot of different things that have these angular momentum things. But it's, it's a very cool image, and it's very non-intuitive, which makes it look magical. Two other scientists in the troupe are Heather Passe and Blake Vanier. I really like the, well, the vortex cannon, I guess, is what they're called, where it shoots a vortex ring, and you can knock over some cups from a far distance. Those are pretty neat. I studied aerodynamics at school, so those are fun. I got to see that. That's the one with the trash can, yep. where you have a trash can and a trash bag, and just by taking the trash bag that's taped at the end of the trash can, well, how would you describe it? Basically, just push air through the opening very fast. Like if you've ever known a smoker who blew smoke rings, this is what it would look like, and it would expand. Uh, as kind of a flow visualization, you could see all the little particles moving around the toroid as it moves out and expands. Flow visualization, that's the kind of words scientists use. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the performance is just a few days away, and after rehearsing all weekend, then coming in early to teach at school... Cassie Drew says it's incredibly hard work, but also a dream come true. It's really touching, you know, to like hear this buzz around this thing that started off as just a, just an idea, you know, and just a vision. And now it's like becoming real and I'm just sorry. I, it's just really exciting. It's really big for me. She and Ian Caldwell hope this Friday's performance will be the first of many. And for the third graders at Cassie Drew's school who have seen a sneak preview of the circus, some of them also say this. I am a scientist. How do you know? Because I know about gravitational forces. 
and gases and liquids. And what did you think of the circus performance having science in it? It could be educational. Did you already know the stuff they were explaining? Well, kind of. Do you know it better because they did it in a circus? Mm, yeah. When you see something, normally you can observe it more than just hearing about it. Does it help that it was fun? Well, it's adding fun to math. Well, fun to science. So the Cindy circuits of science, not math. Can now use gravitational forces and they can, well, make smoke rings. The Vicindi Circus performs at Westminster High School this Friday at 7 p.m. and this Saturday at 6. Find out more at the website vicindi.org, V I S I N D I.org. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. The Kepler telescope was launched in 2009 to track down other Earths, and early returns indicate that there may be 17 billion Earth-sized planets orbiting stars in our Milky Way. My guest is Dr. Brian M. Henick, director, CU Center for Astrobiology. Brian, we're on for about uh, 10 minutes, so Going through all 17 billion candidates would give us about 35 nanoseconds per planet. So let's cut right to the short list, which, due to the Kepler mission, I guess is at about 2,740 planets, and frankly, really not that short. So is astrobiology currently experiencing an embarrassment of riches? Uh, yes, this is a, a great time. The Kepler mission has really just exceeded all our expectations and really just uh, shown us whole new worlds to search for life elsewhere. And now out of these 2,740 planets, I guess, you know, it's not simply a matter of being the size of the Earth. Uh, there has to be, uh, as you mentioned in the teaser, you're in the Goldilocks zone, neither too warm nor too cold. And the conditions have to be right for certain chemicals like water and methane. Tell me a little bit about what uh, the conditions that we think are necessary for there to be life on a planet. All right. Yeah, let me just back up. And so from the Kepler results, we think there's maybe on average 1.6 planets per star in the Milky Way. So in total, that's 300 billion planets or so. Mm -hmm. And of, of course, the, the ones we're interested in are, are those that may host life. And, and there's very specific conditions, at least from what we currently understand, uh, that life requires. And so we're looking for planets that are similar in size to Earth and at a similar distance from their parent star. So they are in this Goldilocks zone where the porridge is not too hot like it would be at Venus where the oceans had boiled away or out at Mars where things are frozen nowadays. We're looking for places where there would be liquid water or the possibility of that. I noticed there that you said uh, about Mars that things are frozen nowadays. Uh, however, I understand that uh, although most scientists don't think that there is a good indication of life on Mars today, there may have been at some time in the past, and I understand uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory running the uh, Curiosity rover mission, that rover recently attempted its first drilling into some bedrock and uh, is currently doing some chemistry with its onboard chemistry set, and uh, we're awaiting some return. So what do you think about the past, present, and future prospects for life on Mars? 
Well, I, I, I think there's good prospects. Uh, certainly in the past, Mars seems like it was much more Earth-like and much warmer, had, had oceans probably and uh, rivers and hydrologic cycle and warmer climate. So we think certainly life could have uh, come about or been sustained on early Mars. And e- even at, at present, there are a few places where we actually have good evidence for shallow liquid aquifers uh, where water occasionally pours out onto the surface. And so the the main thrust here of NASA is, is to sort of explore Mars and understand its habitability through time, including even today. You know, astrobiology itself seems like such a very exotic term that I think some people might not even believe it's an actual discipline. Tell me a little bit about um, the founding of astrobiology as a discipline, how you came to be in it, and, and what you know, an asteroid biologist would actually do now that we have all of these new planets uh, throughout the Milky Way to look at, and, and certainly Mars much closer to home right in our own solar system. Well, sort of the, at the heart of astrobiology is understanding the origin and evolution of life on our own planet, and then looking elsewhere to to detect other forms of life. So, yeah, where did the discipline come about? Well, a lot of people in very diverse fields uh, were the earliest astrobiologists. Carl Sagan, an astronomer. Uh, we had certainly uh, microbiologists that were looking at origin of life uh, issues. And so it's sort of uh, pulling together all these multidisciplinary approaches from biology to chemistry to physics to astronomy to geology and really trying to put our heads together and really understand the possibility of, of life beyond Earth. So you mentioned that in order to understand what life can be like on other planets, we first really have to get a full understanding of of life on our own planet and how it came to be. Uh, And as we were speaking a little bit before this this, uh, interview, you mentioned that uh, the University of Colorado's own LASP uh, just recently launched a mission, the Radiation Belt uh, uh, Storm Probes, and that LASP is also uh, giving a lecture – uh, its monthly public lecture series, Don Baker, the director of LASP, is going to give a lecture on space, physics, and society. That way, if we don't answer everyone's questions here on the show today, uh, they can hear more about it. So tell me a little bit about uh, what uh, LASP is doing with this mission and what you know about that and, and what people might hear if they go to this lecture. When is it? Uh, the the lecture is going to be next Wednesday, February 6th at 730 on East Campus at LASP, so sort of around 35th in Colorado there, and their website has, has maps and details. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, this lecture is going to be by our director, Dan Baker, who, uh, you know, LASP has been at the forefront of understanding space physics uh, since they came about 60-plus years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's becoming more and more important to understand our upper atmosphere and the energetic uh, particles that are coming in from the sun and other sources being accelerated in places like the Van Allen belts. And uh, this certainly has effect on our, our communications, our, our satellites that are up there. It helps us understand the space environment and keep our astronauts safe and, and really just helps us plan for the future and, and how we go out and explore space. Do you think it's uh, a reasonable use of government money, certainly everyone talks about how the government is strapped for cash right now, to uh, fund a program to send humans to other planets in the solar system, or is that something that you think uh, if, if NASA were going to be given a limited budget that its its funds could be better spent elsewhere. Yeah, I mean this this is a big uh, debating point, and certainly the government is strapped for cash. And but but as humans, we're explorers, and we always have explored, and and it's been for the betterment of society. And I don't think we're going to stop. And certainly, it's very costly uh, to send astronauts off off to other planets. But uh, 
you know, in terms of Mars and actually proving that there was life there in the past, uh, it might be a lot easier with an astronaut than a robot. Fair enough. Uh, so let's go back to this uh, somewhat humorously called shortlist of 2,740 planets. Uh, out of the planets that have actually have been identified, I guess a lot of them recently by the Kepler telescope, are there any that are particularly close or are particularly favorable, uh, a favorite of yours, that you think that there's something we could do to observe from this far away and, and decide whether or not we see signs of, of any kind of life? Right. So so like I said, we want to focus in on these uh, ones that are in the habitable zone, places where liquid water could exist that are in good stable orbits that aren't too big. So they're gas giants, they're solid rocky bodies. And of, of these several thousand, there's... I think five or six dozen right now that that really fit those uh, conditions. They're Earth size and and right in the prime spot. And yeah, how do we detect life if it would happen to be there? That's that's challenging, right? But if Kepler were out at one of those planets, looking back at Earth, it it would definitely see the signatures uh, from our atmosphere. Our, our atmosphere is totally out of equilibrium. In is if there uh, certainly it was life here that's providing the oxygen, providing the ozone, providing most of the methane. So there are signatures within the, the atmosphere, the biosignatures that we could look for and, and then potentially infer that there would be life on these planets. And I, I just want to clarify for the listeners out there, because I know a lot of people sort of combine uh, two concepts. There's um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, where we say we find life because we find the radio broadcasts and the signs of civilization. But this is a more fundamental concept of finding any sort of life, whether it be just like sort of probiotic life or, you know, plant life, funguses, single cells. Uh, so what sort of things would you look for on a planet? I don't know how many light years away is, for instance, the closest planet that's a good candidate. And, and what sort of things literally what would you look for in the data that would indicate uh, a certain uh, ratio of chemicals in the atmosphere? Right. Yeah, I, I at least, you know, we only understand life on Earth and it's our, our only data point. So. Life elsewhere could be producing different chemicals, but things that are anomalies, things that are, that are out of the ordinary from what we think atmospheres should, should be like if there's life or not life. Okay, so a final and very difficult question, and this is, goes right to what you said about um, is the nature of life on Earth really the nature of life as it has to be everywhere in every place? Uh, life could be very, very different. Here, all life on Earth is based on this idea of Watson and Crick's DNA double helix. Do you think at some point in your lifetime it's possible that we could find evidence of life on another planet that does not have the Watson and Crick DNA double helix, or do you think that's fundamental to the nature of life? No, it's a good question. Uh, I I think life certainly could have have a different structure. There there are other ways to to make life, uh, but there's a number of really advantageous geochemical processes and and biochemical processes that our life has has used through time and and adapted. And all life uh, uses certain things and uh, certain components and certain sources of energy. So that's our starting point for looking for life elsewhere. Excellent, Brian. Well, we've got about 20 seconds. What do you foresee yourself doing uh, with all of this new data in, in your next uh, few months of your career? Uh, it's, it's exciting. It's fun to ponder with my extraterrestrial life course that I teach at the University of Colorado. And uh, my focus is on Mars right now. I'm, I'm really curious as to what curiosity is uh, sniffing around there in the rocks on Mars. Thank you. That was uh, Dr. Brian M. Henick, Director, CU Center for Astrobiology. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. 
This show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender, and the executive producer was Shelley. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Wider World. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Chip Granditz. 